0: You've Downloaded the podcast of News Hour Extra, and just to say thank you very much for those of you who suggested uh, various ideas for our name change uh, planned for the next few months' time. Moving on from News Hour Extra to something else, so if you've got a view, we'd very much like to hear from you. News Extra at bbc.co.uk. Uh, as I say, some quite good ideas already in, but any other suggestions, gratefully received. A new name. For News Hour Extra this week's uh, podcast we're talking about the Iranian nuclear deal the joint comprehensive plan of action or as you'll hear in the program sometimes called JCPOA we'll be asking to what extent it has made the world a safer place and president trump has given his view on that he talked about the deal during his first address to the UN general assembly last month the iran deal was one of the worst
1: and most one-sided transactions the united states has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States. And I don't think you've heard the last of it. Believe
0: me. Well, we've assembled a panel to discuss the Iran nuclear deal. Here with me in London is Jack Straw, former British Foreign Secretary, had that job from 2001 to 2006. uh, And I think it was the first British Foreign Secretary to visit Iran after the revolution.
2: I was and I went there first off in September 2001, and then four times after that. Uh, So I got quite familiar with Tehran. And with my French and German counterparts, we got going what originally was the E3 negotiations, which when the US came in uh, and the other members of the P5 became the E3 plus 3,
0: which 12 years later resulted in the JCPOA, the Iran deal. We've also got in uh, Washington three contributors Laura Rosen, diplomatic correspondent of the news website Al Monitor, who has watched this process, the deal being done and all the subsequent activities surrounding it day by day. We also have Dr. Ariane Tabatabai, a visiting assistant professor at Georgetown University, and Benam Ben-Talablu, a senior Iran analyst at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy in Washington. Right, so I'm going to do a quick round with all of you, first of all, just to get your basic orientation. Ariane Tabatabai, the Iran nuclear deal, good deal, bad deal?
3: Good deal. It managed to bring a country into compliance without firing a single shot. It has provided their national community with very comprehensive monitoring and verification into its nuclear program. It has also opened the door for further negotiations, which is what the Europeans are doing currently. Ben Ben
1: Taliblu. Good deal, bad deal. Most unfortunately, I would say the JCPOA nuclear deal is a bad deal. I tend to agree with uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster who called it fatally flawed. It basically rests on an assumption that you can excise the nuclear threat posed by Iran from the rest of the community of threats that it poses to the international community.
0: Jack Straw, since you helped negotiate, it, you're bound to say it's a good deal.
2: Well, I'm not bound to say it's a good deal because I can think of some things I negotiated which were bad deals, but this wasn't one of them. This was and is a very good deal it better guarantees the international community that Iran will not and cannot develop a nuclear weapons capability in the next 15 years than the alternative, uh, so it makes us safer.
0: Laura Rosen, we're, we're, we're consulting you in the course of the, of the hour as someone who's just very familiar with all the detail of this, not so much as uh, you know for your ideological position on this, but just on the, the facts of what's been going on. So can I just ask you, for, uh, to begin with, to explain the deal... What are the main elements of the Iran nuclear deal?
4: The main elements were to restrict Iran's ability to have the fissile material for a nuclear weapon. So, the main one on uranium enrichment cut back their number of centrifuges and their swoos. Ariane can explain that. So that there would be a minimum one year amount of time that it would take Iran to produce enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon. Um, And then there was this extensive verification and monitoring uh, mechanism put in where there's like round-the-clock cameras and and access to the declared nuclear sites and inspections by the IAEA, uh, who's reported I think eight times since it went into effect in January 2016, uh, that Iran is is indeed complying with the deal.
0: Uh, who signed the deal?
4: The six world powers: the U.S., U.K.,
0: France, Britain, Germany, China, Russia, and Iran. Did Iran ever, in this process, uh, say we are trying, sort of under pressure, say we are trying to build a nuclear device, a no, weapon? They, weapon? They n- never.
4: They um, deny that they've ever aspired. To seek nuclear weapons capability, they say they 're a member of the Npt and they 're allowed to have enrichment there I think when uh, Foreign Secretary Straw was negotiating, their argument was that they were allowed to maintain domestic enrichment, and that was the u s was not party to the negotiations at that point, but the u s denied that Iran was entitled to have domestic enrichment and and that 's Actually, the argument Iran won after
0: 13 years of negotiations is yeah, they yeah. were able to maintain an, an yeah. enrichment capacity. And, and it's exactly. So, so, Iran under the deal is free to do nuclear energy, right?
4: With limits for up to like 15 years for the size of their enrichment capacity. And one of the Trump administration's main critiques of the deal is that different elements of it expire over time and they're allowed to grow their enrichment capacity, they say to have the capacity to fuel their Russian-provided Boucher uh, nuclear energy power plant. So one of the things the Trump administration would like is to say you can never grow the capacity to fuel that.
0: Yeah, I want, I want, that's the last thing I wanted to just pin you down on to get the detail, was on these so-called sunset clauses, because they're highly controversial. We'll, we'll be discussing them. Can you just explain to us... What the the Trump administration hates them. What are the sunset clauses? I might have to turn to Ariane for
3: uh, a okay Ariane. Why
0: don't you pick up on that, Ariane? How do they
3: work? So the nuclear deal, in order for it to be reached, you had to have a certain number of um, timeframes, essentially. So there is not a single sunset clause, as people make it out to be, but there are a number of provisions that begin to expire after X number of years. Um, and there are different timeframes for each of those things. After 10, 15 years, Iran will be returning to a more normalized nuclear energy program. And you're right to point out that Iran is allowed to have a nuclear energy program under the deal, but it's also important to point out that Iran is allowed to have a nuclear energy program as per the nuclear non-proliferation treaty as all the countries that have signed it um, as non-nuclear weapon states. So the contention is not whether or not Iran should have a nuclear energy program. It is about the scope of the program and Iran's prior non-compliance with the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. And lastly, with the uh, sunset clauses, one thing that is important to understand is that not every single provision within the deal expires after those 10, 15, 20 years the monitoring, their verification, which are incredibly important to the functioning of and our understanding of what Iran is up to, those things will be remaining. And Iran, by the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, will not be allowed to be undertaking uh, weaponization activities no, anyway.
0: Sure. I mean, the, the normal thing would, would apply that it would have committed under the non-proliferation treaty not to build weapons. But just right. to make this clear, President Obama, in explaining the deal, in year, this is what he said, in year 13, 14 and 15, they have advanced centrifuges that enrich uranium fairly rapidly. And at that point, the breakout time, so that's how long it would take them to build a bomb, would have shrunk to almost zero. I mean, this is an important point, because this is what a lot of the criticism is is about.
3: Can can I I clarify one point, that the breakout time, actually, the way it was defined is not how long it takes for Iran to build a bomb, but rather how long it would take for it to have the fissile material that Laura was talking about (coughs) for a nuclear weapon. The part that is not actually uh, that what critics say is part of the shortcoming of the nuclear deal, which I agree with, is that it doesn't actually take into account what happens next, right? Uh, Iran's ability to enrich the fissile material, to accumulate the fissile material, is going to be dragged to one year under the deal. But it takes longer for the country to be able to make it into a functioning warhead and then to put it on a delivery vehicle, uh, which it also needs to build. So it's much longer to have a functioning nuclear weapon.
0: What happens in year 15?
3: Right. So Iran will be resuming uh, a number of the activities that have been limited by the nuclear deal. So you're right in saying that it will be returning to a more normal nuclear energy program. And so in that sense, some of those provisions will be expiring, but some of the other ones will remain in place.
0: Right. Uh, I, I could hear you trying to come in. Uh, Benham Ben Taliblu.
1: Yes. In Annex 5, there are a series of sunset clauses and a series of timelines that basically have restrictions by the West that lapse over time. Well, something that Iran is permitted to do, unfortunately, under the deal, due to weak language, is continue to test ballistic missiles. There is watered-down language in UN Security Council Resolution 2231 on this most likely delivery vehicle We've had the former and uh, present DNI say that Iran's most likely delivery vehicle for a nuclear weapon will be a uh, ballistic missile. That's something they already have made strides in making reentry vehicles for, improve their ability to have submunition payloads. So while, you know, the one-year breakout timeline is true for the fissile material, what we, don't, what we know they will be able to have by the end of that is a functioning delivery vehicle. And what we don't know, what we don't know, is the weaponization stuff, the stuff that happens in Section T of the deal, the stuff that, you know, we need access to military sites to be able to inspect.
0: We're going to talk about access to military sites later. So, I mean, you can see the difficulty we've got. There's a huge amount of detail here. But Jack Straw, uh, I am uh, uh, going to put to you that the, there is an objection about these sunset clauses. And as I understand from what we've just heard, when various time periods run out, and it's an important one 15 years after the, the the deal was made, Iran will revert to being able to do things that it can't now do. And that is seen as a threat by some who think they can revert to a nuclear weapons programme at that time. Well,
2: we've now got this uh, uh, deal. I mean, it is is not a perfect deal. And and it will expire in various dates, including in 15 years time. The question is for the critics, what's the alternative? Now, the alternative is no deal. And you hear Airy talk, as you did throughout the Ahmadinejad, Ahmadinejad period, that if Iran did X or if Iran did y, there would be military action against iran but let 's say the deal completely fell apart. Iran then pursued its obvious right under the uh, non proliferation treaty to enrich uranium for peaceful purposes and Continued with its missile program, which is perfectly entitled to do, let me say, any country can develop some missile capability. That would make it easier for Iranians who are so minded to develop a nuclear weapons capability. What's the US going to do about it? They're not in practice going to launch military strikes because that would produce a huge conflagration in the region.
0: We will be discussing a, the comments of an American general later talking about the possibility of military action. But just now, just so we can finish on this sunset business, sunset clause business, you know, you're saying it's not a perfect deal. It's one of the things that's not perfect, that it is time-limited and that unless other things happen, and hopefully a period of cooperation would grow and Iran might change and all that, but one of the weaknesses is in an ideal world, if it had been possible, you would have not had those sunset clauses. Yeah,
2: yeah. but the world is not ideal. Those directly negotiating this phase of the, of the deal had to make the best judgments they could. There's an, you know, a big question about if Iran stays on the kind of course that's set by President Rouhani, or even if you had someone like Ahmadinejad in place, would they really decide to pursue an active nuclear weapons programme. Because although I don't believe it would lead in the end to serious military strikes, once it came out, it would lead to containment, international isolation, very severe sanctions. Russia doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear weapons capability. China doesn't want them to have a nuclear weapons capability. Why would they? So it, it would be irrational of, of the Iranians, even the hardliners, to go for it. Laura
0: Rosen.
4: Um... Um, and one of the things I feel like the deal reached in, in 2015 tested was, was it possible for the international community to make a deal with Iran, kind of testing this diplomatic opportunity? So beyond the specifics, you know, cons and pros of the deal, things that the West would have wanted differently, and and I'm sure things Iran would want that they did not get from the deal, it was sort of a test of could they move together, come to an agreement, implement it, acknowledge that each other was implementing it, not in breach of it, and test out this wider opportunity. And and one of the things I think is really at risk now is that Iran is, you know, likely going to conclude that they can't trust that they can make an agreement with the international community. And so I think that's almost the bigger thing at stake than the specific elements that people would want changed.
0: Okay, uh, now then, wh- what I'm going to do is ask Ben uh, and Ben Tallablu to listen to this because I think I think we're going to hear from Nikki Haley now, and I think you agree with what she's saying. So I'll ask you to expand on it after we've heard her, because uh, one of the points being made by the Trump administration is that this is not just about the nuclear program; it's about Iran's conduct in the Middle East, and uh, this is what Nikki Haley said at a UN Security Council meeting on the situation in the Middle East. Uh, she appealed for an end to Israel bashing and instead for a bit more focus on Iran.
5: Iran and Hezbollah conspire together to destabilize the Middle East. For decades, they have committed terrorist acts across the region. Today, they prop up Bashar al-Assad's brutality, fighting alongside his forces, adding to the killing of thousands of civilians and the misery of millions of refugees. They train deadly militias in Iraq and arm Houthi militants in Yemen. While this Council has paid too little attention to this growing menace, the United States will not. We're going to speak up about Iran and Hezbollah, and we're going to act against their lawlessness. In Lebanon, Hezbollah, a terrorist organization, uses towns to shield its arsenals of tens of thousands of illegal rockets. In Syria, Hezbollah controls territory on the ground. With Iran's instructions. Its militias stand side by side with Syrian troops as they slaughter the Syrian people. Iran is using Hezbollah to advance its regional aspirations. They are working together to expand extremist ideologies in the Middle East. That is a threat that should be dominating our discussion at this Security Council.
0: And that was Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the UN in New York. Now, uh, Ben Amben Taleblu, you you basically agree with that, that that your your, your argument is that uh, Iran is doing all these other things, non-nuclear, which uh, need containment.
1: Well, yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, unfortunately, that is the reality. Ambassador Haley kind of laid out some of Iran's non-nuclear threats, which this administration has uh, at least promised to check and push back and maybe roll back with non-nuclear sanctions. You know, in August, the president signed into uh, law a new sanctions package countering America's adversaries through sanctions act this bill apparently seems to lay the predicate for targeting Iran's ballistic missile program but also has a deadline to require the president to designate the IRGC Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps which is the main arm that is active in many of these theaters of conflict you know Iran likes to be active in a lot of these theaters of low intensity conflict because it's looking to deter any strike on the Iranian homeland it keeps the conflicts away that's why the ISIS attack on Iran was very salient for the regime leadership, and it feels that if it can keep America and American allied entities bogged down in these theaters of conflict, the Iranian homeland and the regime in particular will remain secure. I mean, that's a very grim picture that Nikki Haley presented, but it's a, it's a mm. picture of the transnational threats posed by Iran and its proxies. Jack you want to comment on that?
2: Well, it is entirely legitimate for any nation-state to want to keep its own borders and its own territory secure. Well, I'm interested you make that admission, that that is the fundamental aim of the Iranians. And in the context of the Iran-Iraq war, you can understand why Iran is neurotic about its own borders. I'd also like to challenge this uh, trope uh, that quotes Iran is the greatest uh, terrorist sort of sponsoring state in the history of the world. Um, the Hezbollah, I'm not here to, to defend Hezbollah, but they will say, well, hang on a second, we have a legitimate concern about protecting our people in South Lebanon, and they do. And as for al-Assad, well, there's a whole serious debate about the fact that the strategy, which I'm afraid that the West has followed against Assad, has, has failed, and, and as a result, the strategy for dealing with Syria has been completely passed from the West to President Putin, and Assad, far from being removed, is now stronger than he
0: has been for the last five years. Benham, um, let me just give a lot of points there, just give you a chance to come back.
1: I absolutely agree with uh, Foreign Secretary Sehra. The Iran-Iraq war was one of the most salient things that ever happened to the Islamic Republic. It made it path dependent to resurrect the late Shah's nuclear program. That's the time that Iran went to Libya, Syria, and North Korea to forge ties to procure SCUD missiles that ultimately led to Iran now having the largest ballistic missile arsenal in the region. Every every Iranian major political figure, whether they were on the front lines or on the political sidelines of the war, they made a name for themselves in that conflict. And in Iran, that conflict is styled the Holy Defense. And that just gets to both the status and security considerations Iran has that drive its nuclear, ballistic missile, and regional aspirations. And I'm saying the West may not be able to assuage some of those aspirations through a technical deal. Ultimately, it may require a political solution. And ultimately, if defense of the national interest is is something that Foreign Secretary Straw is saying Iran is engaging, I would say it's it's more exporting regime ideology than defending the Iranian national interest. I think the Islamic Republic has been a poor guardian of the Iranian national interest, and I say that as a proud Iranian-American.
4: it's Laura. I'm uh, jumping in. There's nothing in the JCPOA... Uh, and that is the uh, deal.
1: I should just say that that, that, that horrible yes.
4: acronym
0: is the There's Iran... There's nothing in the
4: Iran nuclear deal that yep. that restrains the United States or other countries from doing sanctions for their missile Absolutely, activity yeah. and terrorism and human rights, and so of some of the Europeans. And so even though the Trump administration has this critique that... The Obama administration was so, they think, so eager to get the nuclear deal during the negotiations and then so desirous to keep it once they had it that they were reluctant to go after uh, Iran-backed activities in Syria and elsewhere. Trump administration has not done it either. You've seen when they've had skirmishes in Syria that the United States has moved out of bases in Syria when they've come into contact with Iranian-backed groups. Trump has no interest in, in confronting Iran yes. in Syria. I, I, so so the, the, the problem is now that the Trump administration, which says they don't want the JCPOA to be the centerpiece of their comprehensive Iran policy, has got us only talking about the Iran nuclear deal. They are not doing anything in terms of pushback except a lot of kind of sloganeering and uh, press release type stuff. So I think they're almost as held hostage to the nuclear deal as
0: they uh, complain that the Obama administration... I just want to to bring in Ariane on one point here. Uh, One of the things that baffles me about this is that you've got all this complaint about Iranian groups in the region, and yet a lot of them are fighting almost alongside US-backed forces in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria... I mean a lot of common interests between these Iranian groups and the United States which never gets re- which never gets reflected.
3: I think that's exactly right. And that's one of my criticisms with uh, Ambassador Haley's uh, comments. People tend to paint Iran's activities in very broad strokes. And the reality is much more nuanced, is much more complex. Iran is doing terrible things in Syria, to be sure. And I think that the United States, the West, should absolutely check Iran's activities there. But in Iraq and in Afghanistan, there is no doubt that Iran has done some positive, some constructive efforts that have been very much in line with what the West, uh, the U.S., and its allies have been pursuing. So I think just saying that, you know, Iran's uh, presence and influence everywhere is nefarious is not really doing justice to what is going on on the ground. The second thing I want to point out is that for all of the Rhetoric about Iran's capabilities, you know, the the way people talk about Iran in, in Washington specifically makes it sound like it's Russia or China in terms of its capabilities. And that is just absolutely untrue. Iran's capabilities are not at all what people make it out to be. Uh, you know, yes, its activities are nefarious and uh, it is posing uh, challenges to the West, but it's not the existential threat that people make it out to be.
2: Back in 2001, straight after nine uh, eleven, President then-President Hartomy reached out uh, to the West with violent condemnations of 9-11 and also of Saddam Hussein's celebration of 9-11. I went to I- Iran for my first visit a couple of weeks after 9-11, and that laid helped to lay the ground, it wasn't just me, for very intense intelligence cooperation and plenty of other cooperation on the ground in Afghanistan, which Iran knew much better than the US or the UK knew, and that had produced real benefits in terms of helping to get a new government formed in Afghanistan, but also in significantly reducing the risk to coalition forces, US and UK uh, forces on the ground as we were moving towards Kabul.
0: A reminder that you're listening to the podcast of NewsHour Extra. We do an hour of discussion on a single topic every week. And this week, as you've been hearing, it's the Iran nuclear deal and whether it's made the world a safer place. We've also got other podcasts from the BBC World Service. I could perhaps recommend Witness. It's uh, our history series told by people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped shape our lives and the places we live. So that's the Witness podcast, but you're now listening to NewsHour Extra. And just a reminder of our panel today, I'm joined by uh, former British Foreign Secretary Jack Straw in Washington, D.C., by Laura Rosen of Monitor, Ariane Tabatabai of Georgetown University and Benam ben Talablu from the Foundation for the Defence of Democracies. Right, compliance. I want to get on to this issue of the degree to which uh, the nuclear deal has been respected by both sides. And Jack Straw, let me just start with you. Is the West... In compliance with the nuclear deal? No, the
2: West is not in compliance. Iran is, according to the International Atomic Energy Energy Agency, in compliance, and that's been certified, I I think, uh, eight or a dozen times. And the interesting thing about the Iranians is that although they are maddening uh, to negotiate with, once they they sign on the dotted line, on the whole, they stick to their deals. The West is is not in compliance, and the reason for that is this, that under the terms of, of the deal, it was agreed that markets and investment and trade with Iran would be opened up. That requires banking facilitation. And a consequence of non-nuclear-related existing banking sanctions in Washington is that agencies of the US Treasury have gone round European banks, including British banks, and literally threatened those banks that if they uh, facilitate lawful trade or investment uh, with Iran between European Companies and Iran, which are denominated in U.S. dollars or, in some cases, in euros, then
0: very serious sanctions will follow. And on the it, on the banks, on the banks. Okay, ma'am, most of the attention on this. Comp- yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think someone we have to, to come be in. a
4: little careful. It's Laura here, um, just because I think we're getting close to when there might be material breaches by one country or another. To say that, as far as I heard, uh, the European Union foreign policy chief in New York last month, she says that all the parties at the table agreed that. Uh, all the parties were complying so far. So while there, there are uh, shortcomings, that Iran doesn't feel like they got all of the uh, sanctions relief in actuality that it was promised under the deal. I don't think there's actually been a designation of a material breach by by any party to the deal so far. That's right, a,
0: it's, it's not, yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's no designation, it's just Jack Straw's opinion, I think. Well, uh, it's,
2: well it's, it's, what I'm saying is in the practical consequence of what the US has done threatening uh, British and European banks is that the opening up of trade and investment, which is, for example, a declared policy of the United Kingdom government, has not taken place.
0: Right, let's look at Iranian uh, compliance. And uh, I'm just going to go through some of what uh, the IAEA has said and also how Nikki Haley sees it. Now, the IAEA, the UN Atomic Energy Agency, was asked by the Security Council to verify that Iran is implementing its commitments. And this week, the Director General... Of that organisation, uh, Yukia Amano said Iran is now subject to the world's most robust nuclear verification regime.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, I reported to the board on the agency's work to, to verify and monitor Iran's implementation of its nuclear-related commitments under the JCPOA. The nuclear-related commitments undertaken by Iran under the JCPOA are being implemented.
0: Are being implemented, he says. But uh, Nikki Haley, US ambassador to the UN, not convinced.
5: As good as the IAEA is, it can only be as good as what they are permitted to see. Iran has publicly declared that it will not allow access to military sites. But the JCPOA makes no distinction between military and non-military sites. There are also numerous undeclared sites that have not been inspected yet. That's a problem. I have good confidence in the IAEA, but they are dealing with a country that has a clear history of lying and pursuing covert nuclear programs. So we are encouraging the IAEA to use all the authorities they have and to pursue every angle possible with the JCPOA, and we will continue to support the IAEA in that process.
0: So that was uh, Nikki Haley. Ben Nam, Ben Talablu, can you just talk us through undeclared sites and military sites? Sure.
1: So uh, in the deal, there's this section called uh, Section T that deals with Iran's uh, promising not to engage in weaponization related activities using basically x-rays, street cameras to do things like uh, explosions and modeling and things of that nature that are pertinent to actually developing a functioning nuclear weapon. But the problem is we don't know where all of this activity is occurring. And the U.S. doesn't feel through giving the names of certain sites to the P5 plus one that it may have obtained through national technical means because it would serve as a predicate for the U.S. to have to give a site every time, allow Iran a certain period of time to clean it up and then provide the IAEA access with certain sites like that.
0: Can you you just slow down a second? Are you saying that you believe the U.S. has evidence of breaches in undeclared sites that it doesn't want to reveal for fear of giving giving away its sourcing?
1: No. No, that that may be one reason why when Nikki Haley met uh, with Ambassador Romano in Vienna in August 2017, that may be one reason why she didn't give the names of any sites. They also may not want to create a false predicate, even if they have access to uh, these kind of sites.
0: Yeah, well, this all seems very vague. I mean, are are there sites where they're in breach, in your view? Well, you don't know what we don't know. Okay. Uh, Ariane Tabatabai.
3: We don't know what we don't know, that is true. But on the flip side, uh, I'm not convinced that critics of uh, this specific provision of the deal have provided any viable mean to measure what we don't know. And I think that giving up on what we are, the information we are acquiring. So what we do know, because, you know, there are things that we don't know is just it makes no sense.
0: I'm just going to bring Laura in for a second. Laura, can you listen to this? Because this is the IAEA chief. Now, he had a whole lot of journalists constantly trying to get him to be more specific. And this he was pressed on them. This is Mr. Romano from the IAEA saying, what about suspicious sites? This is what he said. I'm not saying uh,
6: whether any site is suspicious or not, because this is not the concept of uh, the IAEA. Uh, we receive a declaration from a country, this case Iran, we review it, and we, when we identify a need, uh, we provide opportunity to clarify to Iran and then uh, request access. This is uh, the process, and uh, this process will continue.
0: So, Laura, I mean, I think people listening to that just sort of think it's quite bureaucratic. Uh, He's sticking to the rules, obviously. But are they really determined to get to the bottom of what's there?
4: As I understand, there has not been a request put forward by a nation to make a certain inspection that Iran has refused. This this process and there's a there's a mechanism in the deal um, that my colleagues may know the, the details better. It's some amount of days uh, that would transpire before, and a few countries that would have to sign on uh, to press uh, Iran to a- agree to that inspection. That that whole
2: uh, episode has not occurred, to my knowledge. But I also want to pick up. Beckman's claim about we don't know what we don't know, well, that happens to be logically true. But let's just assume that every single conceivable uh, military site in Iran was subject of completely thorough and 24-7 inspection today. It would still be possible for people like Beckman to say, ah, but they've got a secret site. Um, uh, and uh, they, we, we, you know, uh, they're doing X or Y. They could be doing X or Y, and that would be true. But what is also the case is that there is pretty extensive intelligence cover of Iran, um, not only by the U.S. directly, but particularly by the Israelis, because there are you know, scores and scores, and, I mean thousands, of uh, people uh, of Iranian heritage who now live in in Israel. I mean, they've got brilliant cover, and. The chances are that if Iran was up to something serious, the Israelis would know about it. And yes, through the CIA, they would pass on this intelligence to the IAA. That's how the system works.
0: Last word on this well, to, to, to Benham, because I mean, th- let me just put to you the point that Saddam Hussein faced, you can't prove a negative.
1: And so what can they do? Well, that's right. You can prove a negative, but I want to politely uh, speak to uh, Foreign Secretary Straw's comments he about... As
2: impolite as you like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, well, you know, Persians are very polite people. <laughs>
5: yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, about, uh, about, about some of the comments on, on weaponization, if you excise the Iranian nuclear threat from the remaining threats that the Islamic Republic poses, then you are, you are working on an assumption that you can somehow deal with those other threats. If we're going to handcuff ourselves, like Secretary Straw says, to not impede the, uh, Iran's trade, to, to basically not allow the Treasury Department to do its job, to basically go around, instead of arm-twisting European banks, to actually permit European banks to not do their own due diligence, then it would be in a position where the rest of Iran's non-nuclear threats would be underscored and Tehran would be emboldened to engage in the rest of the destabilizing behavior. You know, at a minimum, just to, just to put a finer point of this, I think the U.S. should vigorously enforce the JCPOA. At a maximum, the U.S. should look to create a predicate to renegotiate some of the parts of the JCPOA. Renegotiation on a daily basis in the Iranian press is basically derided. So what does that mean? That means that maybe you can work together with the European counterparts, particularly the French, who have cited on the UNJ floor the Sunset Clause issue, who have cited the ballistic missile issue, and some of the British, who have cited the ballistic missile issue but not the Sunset Clause's, to you know, create some kind of transatlantic consensus to not let Rouhani cleave the transatlantic community apart like he did in 2003 to 2005, where he basically marshaled the EU3 against the Bush administration.
0: Can when, I jump in? No, no, just have Jack
2: coming no, back. I just, to just need to correct to your, your history. Please. The, the, the US under-president George W. Bush were lukewarm, to say the least, about the European approach to Rouhani and Khartoumi in 2003. By 2005, as Condoleezza Rice has um, generously uh, set out in her memoirs, uh, the US administration, at her recommendation, and George W. Bush, who was an intelligent, thoughtful man, had changed their approach. And they then came in to these negotiations, which we had started
0: OK,
3: who who's trying to come in now? Can I, can I jump in? as Ariane. Ariane, yeah. I think that um, without a nuclear deal, we'll actually be in worse shape uh, for trying to contain Iranian behavior or try to address challenges stemming from Iranian behavior, uh, because ultimately you cannot rein in all of Iran's activities. That's just not going to happen unless you're willing to go in for regime change. And that's a terrible idea. We've learned that over and over again, right? Um, So the best thing to do, again, is to try to build dialogue. But you can't do that if you're saying uh, if two years after the first nuclear deal uh, goes into effect, you are uh, already thinking about dropping out of it.
0: Okay. I think what I'm going to do is is play this... um tape we've got of uh, General Jack Keane, because it just speaks to directly what you're all talking about. And this is the US Army General Jack Keane, who was asked about uh, how he sees uh, the options on Iran now if this nuclear deal unravels. And uh, Justin Webb, BBC correspondent, spoke to him and asked how Iran could be persuaded to give up nuclear weapons. Well, we would have to convince them that we would put a military option right back on the table as it was once before. And if they did not stand down with verification, then we would have to execute it. I mean, we cannot let Iran have nuclear weapons. They are already developing and buying ICBMs. If Iran with nuclear ICBMs is not a threat to the region, they are a global menace. And we cannot permit something like that to happen.
2: But are you, are you seriously suggesting that the United States unilaterally would attack Iran?
0: Oh, well, we'd probably do it with the Israelis, I would imagine, and also with the assistance of the Sunni Arabs. Right, so that gives you the sort of hardline US position now from uh, uh, retired uh, Vice Chief of the U.S. Uh, Army, uh, General Jack Keane. So, can I just get some comment from that from Washington, uh, uh, Laura? Perhaps you yeah, first of well, all. Yeah, if- I mean, I feel like he's he's
4: trying to solve a problem that we currently don't have, and, and 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 there's you know there's not a lot of dissension in Washington that Iran should not be having a nuclear weapon and on an ICBM. I think that's a settled that's a settled matter. So, um, you know, I don't understand the the. Um, you know, having an imperfect agreement where that Iran is complying with, why are we at the point of discussing again uh, a military option to get rid of Iran's nuclear weapon that it does not have? The the problems that we have with Iran, which all of us have been discussing, uh, can be addressed outside of the deal or, as, as all of us really, I think, agree, and the Europeans have come repeatedly to the Trump administration to say they would like to talk with the United States about doing a, a second deal, an add-on deal, to address the other concerns. Um, instead of destroying the U.S. credibility and and uh, walking away from the current deal, so and, and it is unclear to me why the Trump administration has not been more receptive to basically yes from the Europeans. We will work with you to try to get a deal to address some of these other concerns.
1: And- and, and something the administration really could do, and I, I think maybe you should have done this summer, is to push within the U.N. So, fine, there may be some parties who don't believe the Trump administration, but the Trump administration should be able to use the shared interest it has with France and some of the other EU members to go to the Security Council and to resurrect the panel of experts that existed under 1929. Iran, and to the best of my knowledge, through what we hear... Russia helped kill the panel of experts when 2231 was created in, in the UN so instead every six months you have the UN Secretary General come out with a report on alleged violations of NXB of the UN Security Council resolution codifying the deal what we need is the investigative body we need the nonpartisan not you know in, independent investigative body that existed under the UN that used to look into these allegations that could actually help all of us in this room come to a conclusion is there is a medium-range nuclear capable ballistic missile test a violation of the deal or not is it intercepted on arms shipment to the Houthis by Iran a violation or not? Is a Ministry of Defense subsidiary by Iran who's participating okay, but, but, for the but, but second, second Benham,
0: time? Benham, you're ever. getting into such detail here. I mean, I think the, the, the broad question is, you just heard a, a, senior, six, a senior retired officer uh, talking about the possibility of, of war with Iran. Uh, does that make any sense to you?
1: No, because we have all these other options available to us right mm-hmm. now, and these are options that you, we should avail ourselves with, especially if leaders like President Macron of France have used their floor time at the UNGA mm-hmm. to harp on the same threats that President Trump has. Mm-hmm. Got the point. Uh, Jack Straw.
0: Well, I'm glad that Beckman
2: um, does not vocally support General Jack Keane. I thought that his...
1: I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant man. I just don't support him in this instance. Well, he may be brilliant, <laughs> but
2: I think that also he's dangerous uh, and uh, irrational in coming out with these threats. But apart from anything else... They're threats which can't be carried out. He says, oh, well, in a very casual way, we'll probably take military action with the Israelis and the Sunni Arabs. When push comes to shove, the Israelis are going to be very, very reluctant about taking military action against Iran. We saw that before when Benjamin Netanyahu put it on the agenda, and he got vocal opposition to that from within uh, the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, and the Israeli intelligence uh, services from the external service from Mossad and actually from Shin Bet, the internal one. Why? Because they didn't think it would work. And also, they will make Israel, which is far closer to Iran than the United States, a target. The same with the Sunni Arabs. The Sunni Arabs are not united on how they handle Iran. I mean, look at the, the disagreements inside the Gulf Consultative Council at the moment. You've got uh, Saudi Arabia on one side with some support from the UAE. You've got uh, Kuwait trying to act as an honest broker. You've got Oman, uh, which has long had very good relations with Iran but maintained those with the Saudis as well. But the last thing they want is any kind of military action. And then you've got Qatar, uh, which is basically currently on, on the side of the Iranians. And none of those would wish to see an attack on Iran because their own uh, territory uh, would itself be highly vulnerable, particularly if US bases in Saudi Arabia and Qatar were used.
0: One of the themes that's come up in this discussion, and we'll just end on this topic, is uh, sanctions and the economic impact and whether uh, everyone's in breach or doing enough trade and doing as much trade as they'd like to and so on. I'd just like to play you a bit of tape from Esfandiar Betmangelic. Now, he's an Iranian-American businessman, the founder of the annual Europe-Iran Forum, So very much involved in these trade and business issues. And I asked him, uh, what was it like, first of all, doing business in Iran before the nuclear deal?
6: Well, when international sanctions were in place, primarily and most especially when the financial sanctions were in place following, uh, which came into effect around 2012, you know, the international trade and investment in Iran had really ground to a halt. And the few companies from outside of Iran that were engaging tended to be Chinese or Korean entities that were a little bit less um, wary of the imposition of sanctions, uh, which came primarily from the EU and the U.S. And so it was a difficult period, and Iran's economy was uh, contracting. The oil industry was uh, exporting less and less oil. And I think it had become very clear to the Iranian policymakers that they needed to make a change, no less because the Iranian people uh, were a little bit fed up with uh, the state of affairs.
0: So the pressure was on internally?
6: The pressure was on. I, there's an argument to be made that, you know, a country can uh, can last a lot of pressure. But I think Iran, um, you know, commendably certain individuals within the establishment were clear that they had an aspiration for the country. They didn't want to see the country languish. Uh, simply because of this disagreement with the international community, and thats uh, they sought to rectify that in part through the nuclear negotiations
0: and then the deal was done. How did it change things on the economic front?
6: It's had a very marked change. I think there's a, you know, there's a back and forth as to whether or not expectations were a little bit out of line and whether things should have moved faster. But it's worth noting that uh, trade between particularly Europe and Iran has increased 94% in the last year based on statistics from the European Union. And Iran's GDP, according to the uh, IMF, has grown 7.4% in the same period. So there is a clear rebound taking effect. A lot of that is driven by the resumption of oil exports. But generally speaking, if you're on the ground in what you see is a business community that's been revitalized, and they're actively seeking new opportunities with international partners.
0: So if that business community gets sanctions again after, you know, in the next few months, how is that going to work out politically internally?
6: Well, it's a, it's a very difficult scenario, particularly for the Rouhani administration, which you know President Rouhani won a resounding election victory in May, largely because of the mandate he was given to uh, push through economic reforms and really bring back jobs and wage growth for the Iranian people. In the event that sanctions are reimposed, which is still up in the air, uh, I think it will prove difficult for that, the administration to make good on that promise. And uh, there is an argument to be made that it will basically uh, empower his opponents, his domestic political opponents, to uh, stymie the reform process that he had begun, whether we're talking about legal reform, regulatory reform or financial reforms, all which are necessary for the economy to grow at the pace that's necessary to create jobs.
0: Just one question on how it's worked in the more recent years. Uh, yeah, there's often a question of whether whether the, the profits being made are evenly distributed. Is it, is it mainly the mullahs who are making the money now? Or, or, or is it trickling down?
6: I think it's a mischaracterization of Iran's economy to assume that the power is so centralized that only one small group is benefiting economically. Um, it's clear in uh, surveys that are done of the Iranian public that the people necessarily haven't seen a huge difference in their quality of life just yet. But at the same time, those same surveys tend to uh, identify that the Iranian people see their economy as being more diverse than we often give uh, Iran credit for. There is a large private sector that's actually leading the way in terms of new economic engagements. And that private sector, uh, including companies that are listed on the stock exchange, is more beholden to or accountable to the general public. So, you know, ultimately, the, the evidence is quite clear that if Iran is able to achieve economic growth in the coming medium to long term those dividends should reach uh, the people. And it's not the case that there's a sort of total kleptocratic economy that uh, is going to just take all of the benefits of of this windfall.
0: So that was uh, Esfandia Batmangelich, who's with the uh, annual Europe-Iran Forum. Now then, I just wanted to end on this point, and I'll put it to you, our speakers in Washington, first of all. Yeah, the most striking thing, Laura, to me in that was 7.4% growth. I mean, that makes a political difference, right, internally?
4: Yes, yes. um, And I just read an economist article saying that, you know, there's not been that so much, so much foreign direct investment in Iran since the reaching of the nuclear deal. But they've had this growth largely from local economy. And maybe that would not be
0: so impacted, uh, even if Trump decertifies. I see. So it's not clear what the economic impact is. But Ariane, when you look at uh, trade and economics, is that a driver in this? Can it can it be a driver?
3: No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think it's also uh, important to point out that it's only been uh, it's been less than two years since the uh, implementation of the nuclear deal started. Uh, and I think that um, the, the, the the characterization that there were, you know, expectations were very high, high is absolutely right. Uh, and you cannot expect a country whose economy has been plagued by corruption, mismanagement, uh, sanctions and the presence of the Revolutionary Guards and various key sectors to recover overnight um, or even in two years or five years uh, from all of that with certain sanctions being removed. Also remembering that there are other sanctions that are currently in place and that Will remain in place, and, and be- Benham, just a, a final
0: word from you. If if that if there are more sanctions and that growth rate is is pared back, uh, is that a positive thing?
1: The sanctions that I think the Congress is most likely to pass, while well, it has the sixty days to basically deliberate over the future of the nuclear deal and to come up with a comprehensive Iran policy, are non nuclear sanctions. So these would be a little bit more targeted. They would look to go after the industries that, you know, underwrite some of Iran's most salient threats, be it the IRGC or the ballistic missile industry. For the ballistic missile industry, the you know, most of the world's ballistic missile sanctions are export controls. This one would likely target the domestic nodes, you know, the companies that produce the TELs that transport Iran's missiles, the companies that do metallurgy, that help you with warhead engineering. So it would be a little bit more targeted, and I don't think it would have that much of an aggregated effect mm-hmm. on bringing down Iran's GDP. Remember, Iran has also regained its share of oil markets during this time.
0: Right. So, so, so Jack Straw, very t- targeted sanctions what's what's your attitude to this thrust for more sanctions? do you think it, it you know it, it's going to have positive results negative results no it will have negative results
2: in, in my opinion and the, what is missing here is a a strategy from uh, the right in Washington from the trump administration to try and bring Iran in from the cold if president ahmadinejad was still in place, then I would understand the rationale for more aggressive sanctions because he, frankly, was impossible to deal with. I mean, and and then it was the blind talking to the deaf. But that has changed under Rouhani. Of course, he's got his own internal problems, uh, and he only controls part of government uh, in Iran. But he has gradually been able to extend, as it were, the free political space in Iran by what he's been seeking to do. And the more he gets, uh, he more he's able to succeed. The more he gets on side the Iranian public, the power of, of the of the non-democratic forces in Iran is reduced. And then if we open up their economy, inevitably they, they, the pressure is there then on against uh, significant pressure against corruption and much else beside. So it's, it's the absence of a, a strategy. And it, essentially it's the ignorance in parts of Washington, which is so worrying here that, that – and, and Condoleezza Rice – once said to me, and she repeated this uh, in her memoirs, she said the problem is that the State Department, she said, is a Department of Foreign Relations, not a Department of Foreign Policy. And when we lost relationships with Iran back in 1979, we lost policy expertise with Iran, and we've
0: not got it back. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Jack Straw. Laura Rosen, Ariane Tabadabai, and Benham Ben-Talablu. Very interesting discussion. If uh, you'd like to comment on it, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet at bbcnhextra. And don't forget, we are looking for a new name. So if you've got any suggestions, uh, alternatives to News Hour Extra, we'd be very... Grateful for those on those uh, ways of communication, extra at bbc.co.uk, probably being the easiest. Uh, but for now, that's it. So from our excellent panel and from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.